Before we look into God's Word together, please bow as I lead us in prayer. Our most gracious God, we thank you that once again we have the privilege, the blessing of coming together as your people, not only to enjoy seeing each other and fellowshipping with one another, but more importantly, to come into your presence as a corporate body of believers and to worship you in spirit and truth this morning. And Lord, as we look into your word today, I pray that the things we find there would shape the way we look at the world around us, the way we look at our lives, the way we anticipate the future, not only temporally, but eternally. We ask your spirit to um, do this work in our hearts so that we might look at life and the world around us through the lens that you would have us look through. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the themes that Pastor Brad has certainly been expounding upon in his series on the book of Daniel, of course, is the sovereignty and the rule of God in this world his oversight and his directing the paths of even some of the most uh, pagan and godless kings of the day. And we're going to continue in that theme this morning, but we're going to hopscotch up to the New Testament because the idea of God ruling over a kingdom and this world and the world to come is a prominent theme in the New Testament as well. And to that end, I would ask you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and much can be said about the kingdom of God, but probably the most brief and concise definition, just to get us started this morning, is that when we speak of the kingdom of God, we speak of the sovereignty of God in this world as he redeems mankind as he overcomes evil, and as he establishes his new order forever. And as we come to Matthew 13, Matthew, like the other gospel writers, speak of the kingdom of God. Now let me say here at the outset, do not be confused, and certainly don't make the erroneous assumption that somehow there's a distinction between the terms kingdom of God kingdom of heaven. These are used synonymously in the Gospels. And in fact, we have Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man who is coming in his kingdom. It is called the kingdom of Christ. On one occasion, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, speaks of the kingdom of Christ and God. All of these are just different ways of expressing the one central truth that there is a kingdom that God has established in this world that we now enjoy in some measure, but it's not come to its fullness and will not until the conclusion of life as we know it on earth and we're ushered in uh, to eternity. Now, <clears throat> let me just say, uh, just as a couple of, of examples, that you've heard this expression, and I don't know that it can be improved upon. When we speak of God's kingdom, we speak of the now and the not yet. The fact that when Jesus came, he inaugurated his kingdom, and it is being established in the world, sometimes evidently, sometimes not so evident to us, 
and that we are marching toward, as I said, uh, this conclusion. But let me just remind you of these things that are said about the kingdom of God in the present before we get to our text at hand this morning. Uh, Paul uh, describes our becoming Christians as being transferred into Christ's kingdom. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that the kingdom is near. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus makes the statement that the scribes are preventing folks from entering the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when John the Baptist came, calling people to repent, and he said, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then on several occasions, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near you. And so as earth has been moving on its course historically, God has invaded and interrupted human history by establishing his own kingdom and we read about that, as I said, throughout the Old Testament and on into the New. But as we look at the parables I've chosen for today, uh, I've chosen these parables because when we ask ourselves the question, as much as we probably all do, and that when we hear about the kingdom of God being in the now and the not yet, sometimes when we come away from watching the news, whether on television or online, Sometimes we wonder, well, where is the kingdom of God uh, in all of this? Uh, have you ever tried to kind of sort it out and understand, well, what is God doing? Why does evil seem to be so rampant? Why do things seem to be going the opposite direction of what the Scripture says the kingdom of God is about? And the disciples, Jesus' disciples, also had those very same questions. And in fact, the answers to them are not, I don't know if graspable is a word, but they're not to be grasped apart from divine illumination. And when we come to Matthew 13, I would remind you, first of all, that it comments in verse 10 with them asking him a broader question. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand." And so Jesus' purpose in teaching in parables, first of all, they were typically life situations, practical, street-level, everyday living, giving examples that almost everybody could identify with. But the way he used that life situation to present a truth, that was not something that everybody always got. And that's why uh, Jesus refers to them uh, as, as mysteries, he calls them mysteries. Uh, I entitled the sermon today, as you can see on the outline, Kingdom Secrets, because the NIV, the ESV, several of those translations opt for the word secrets instead of mysteries, even though the word in the Greek text is mysterion, it is mystery. But too often, English-speaking people think of a mystery being like a mystery novel or a murder mystery uh, on film. And that's not the way mystery is understood in the New Testament. A mystery simply means there is a truth that a person that cannot come to understand unless there is 
divine intervention and aid and helping us to understand those things. And that's the language Jesus used about these people you know, see with their eyes, but they don't see, and they hear, and they really don't hear. So in answer to the question, what is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven like? Starting in verse 31, he gives several parables. We're going to look at four of them. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to read each one in turn as we move uh, through them. But let me say one other thing about uh, mystery. Here Jesus is using the word to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's used in several other ways. Most of you will recognize this. Uh, Paul said the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church was a mystery. Paul says that Christ himself is a mystery in Colossians 2. At the end of Ephesians 5, when he's talking about marriage, but he says this is a mystery, I'm really talking about Christ and the church, and marriage is a reflection of that. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about when, if we're alive when Christ comes back and we shall all be changed, Paul calls that a mystery. Uh, a final example, in Romans 11, he's talking about the relationship of Israel to the church that's being established. And he talks about a partial hardening of Israel. And yet there's some in Israel that will be saved. Paul calls that a mystery. So let's look at these kingdom mysteries here. Uh, what I'm doing with each one, as you can tell from the information I provided on the bulletin, is we'll look first at the truth, the story that's being told, the parable, and then look at the truth that it is revealing. The first one is in verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, I have read, and perhaps you have too, this is supposedly a mistake in the Bible. Somehow Jesus was not botanically informed by saying that the mustard seed was the smallest seed. Well, the purpose here was not to give a scientific definition of the smallest seed, which happens to be, I don't know if George Bose is in here this morning, our uh, botanical expert, but probably the smallest seed that I've read about is the orchid. It's smaller than a grain of salt, and probably the smallest plant seed on the planet. But obviously Jesus is taking from a life situation that his hearers understood, and to their knowledge, and that day the smallest seed they knew of was the mustard seed. I've seen mustard plants um, only once in terms of them being harvested. I was in Hungary a number of years ago, in the nation of Hungary. I wasn't hungry. But anyway, I was in Hungary. And I was driving with a friend out through the countryside, and I just saw these vast fields of yellow flowers, just vast fields, and they were no taller than me. But uh, I was told that that was mustard. It's one of the things that Hungary exports. But here, Jesus describes this small seed becoming a very big tree. And the fact of the matter is, in some places in the world, including in ancient Palestine and Israel, Mustard plants could get as high as 12 feet and even as high as 20 feet. Now think about it. 20 feet is like two stories. Uh, that's, in fact, there are some mustard trees in the world that have a breadth, a width of 20 feet just in the width of their branches. And so with that in mind, 
Jesus says that even though this mustard seed is so small, it produces this very significant and large tree. The Jews, from other ancient writings not in the Bible, uh, they certainly use this mustard seed analogy to describe things that were considered uh, tiny. Uh, for example, there's an observation that when they were speaking of even the smallest drop of blood, that it was called a drop of blood as small as a mustard seed. Uh, there's another ancient uh, record that tells us that when they were talking about the tiniest breach of ceremonial law, they, would see there sh they said there shouldn't be a breach in ceremonial law, even as small as a mustard seed. So obviously this was something that, to the Jews especially, they were quite familiar with. But what is the truth that is revealed in this? That the kingdom of God has a seemingly insignificant beginning. That the kingdom of God has a seemingly insignificant beginning. And I think we need to look no further than the birth of the church. Starting with its founder, the Lord Jesus Christ, a very humble birth, not to be taken note of except by an enraged, wicked king who tried to have his life snuffed out shortly after birth, but basically growing up in what would be considered a backwater town by most people's estimation. Jesus did not have the education of a lot of other people. He didn't have the worldly education of even the Apostle Paul, but he was certainly well steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. And we think of this little band of, of apostles. Talk about that which has a seemingly insignificant beginning. Eleven men, eventually one added to them to replace Judas, but we all can rehearse in our minds some of their foibles, some of their lack of faith, some of their blunders, Peter's propensity to put his foot in his mouth, it seems, continually. And yet, this little band of people uh, that Paul later describes as God has called to himself people who are not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh. In fact, the people he's drawn to himself look to be foolish by the world. And yet this group of people established the church of Jesus Christ, which has marched on through history for over uh, 2,000 years. The prophet Isaiah at one point says, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. That's just a small little sprig coming out. A sm seemingly small beginning, but it certainly grows into something uh, much greater. When Paul was in Thessalonica with his missionary entourage and created a riot through his preaching. The people that stormed him and his cohorts started shouting that this message and these people have turned the world upside down. I mean, word had gotten out. And in fact, do you know that by the time the last apostle dies, and this is about uh, 60 to 65 years after Jesus was crucified, Historians estimate rather accurately there were about a half a million Christians or more within the Roman Empire. That started with that little band of 11 men, seemingly insignificant, uh, not impressive men by the world standards, but look what uh, became of it.
H.G. Wells, I don't know if you came across that name during your years of education, but H.G. Wells, who really was an avowed atheist, it's interesting he made this observation even though he was not a friend to Christianity. Speaking of Jesus, he wrote this, His is easily the dominant figure in history. A historian without any theological bias whatever should find that he simply cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to a penniless teacher from Nazareth. And of course we know that he was so much uh, more than that. But something that seems small, when Cam Townsend, the man who established Wycliffe Bible Translators, when he established that ministry, if my memory serves me correctly, I think the Bible had been translated into maybe just a little less than 300 languages in the world. Well, as of today, through his efforts that seemed rather small at the beginning, collecting together a few translators, I think as of today, there are 704 languages that have the Bible in its entirety, Old and New Testaments. Just the New Testaments, there's another 15 or 1,600. Well, that has grown from what seemingly seemed a very small start. I'm in touch with a friend in Belarus which has been going through incredible political turmoil and much oppression of Christian Protestant churches in Belarus. And he has planted one church, and from that they have planted another church. And even though some of them are in hiding because of the dictator, and his uh, efforts to sort of repress and stamp out the Protestant church. Uh, they started another church, and being underground, just in the last 18 months, they've already grown to 60. They started with a handful of people. There's 60 meeting in this underground church, planted by the other church, and they're having their first baptismal service. They're putting nothing on social media, but the church is growing in Belarus as this man that I know is planting, excuse me, training uh, these church planters. A seemingly insignificant beginning, but who knows uh, what will uh, become of it. You know, it's interesting that Jesus chooses this parable of the mustard seed becoming a tree in which the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Because that is very much like Brad explained to us in Daniel chapter 4, where when the king had that dream, the dream was about a big tree and a tree that people came to for food, the birds nested in it. And it's that same kind of imagery that Jesus is using here as we think about his kingdom. So to the followers of Christ, this parable, as short as it is, reminds us when it comes to God's kingdom to have patience, to keep exercising faith, uh, to keep praying, and to keep working. The second one is even shorter, verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Of course, when we speak of leaven, it's what we usually refer to as yeast uh, in our culture. And anyone who bakes knows that when you take flour and you're kneading it into a dough and when you 
introduce leaven or the yeast into that, it, it starts a fermentation process that if you're watching it carefully, but it's like watching a pot boil, I mean, it'll actually start to kind of percolate and bubble as that fermentation is going on. And not that this, I think, is germane to the parable, but I do find it interesting that Jesus said that the amount of flour she was working with was three pecks, and the equivalent of that when she added the leaven probably produced about 90 pounds of dough. So this was a big bunch of dough making a lot of bread, a lot of biscuits. Speaking of yeast biscuits, I probably have mentioned this before. Some of you are already laughing. My wife makes the best, what we call angel biscuits. They're yeast biscuits. And just the smell of it in the house is, is quite intoxicating. Uh, the whole family looks forward to, uh, to having it. But I know that she has to add the uh, yeast to it and then put it in the refrigerator with a cloth over it and let it kind of grow. Well, what is Jesus' point? What's the truth that's revealed that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven? Well, it's simply this. The pervasive influence of the kingdom of God in the world. The marvelous increase and in influence of his kingdom. And just as that little lump of fermenting dough added to a larger portion of dough sets off that reaction I was just describing, it is true that as the gospel is shared and as the church grows and as Christ builds his church, it has this pervasive influence in the world. And this is, is borne out beyond a shadow of a doubt through history. Uh, if you go back and, and read, the very first asylum for blind people was started by Christians. One of the very first dispensaries on record was started by Christians. Um, the first hospital started by Christian missionaries. And you go to countries like India and places like that, education, medicine, and those kinds of things that improve people's lives, they were instigated by Christians. If you go back to the first century, the future for children was often hanging in the balance. A Roman father had the right to dismiss his children, cast them into the street, or even have them killed. There's a, an ancient letter that's been preserved where the Roman father is writing back to his wife, and she's about to give birth and he said, if it's a boy, we can rejoice. If it's a girl, do away with her. As brutal as that sounds, that was the lot of children. And Christians were some of the first people to go out into the streets and get these children that had been discarded and to bring them in and give them shelter and to take care of them. So there's this pervasive influence. It's what prompted Wilberforce in England to relentlessly his whole life finally get England to declare slavery illegal. He was driven by a conviction as a Christian, and by what he thought was the moral and ethical you know, thing to do. A lot of times, these things are evident to us. Sometimes we get a little discouraged because we wish it were more evident, but we should not overlook the fact that often God is at work behind the scenes within people's hearts in ways that we don't always readily see. And I think probably the most startling illustration of this is the 20th century news that has come to our attention about China and the status of the gospel in China. Uh, my favorite missions professor in seminary, uh, Dr. J. Herbert Kane, was one of the last missionaries expelled from China in 1949 by the communist government. And 
people wondered for decades, what is going on? What's happening to all these people that became Christians? And now, I was talking with a friend the other day who travels to China frequently, because you hear numbers thrown around, but he's in touch with the organizations that really have people on the ground in these countries. And the Chinese government itself announced three years ago that they thought there were 44 million Christians in China, but those are the ones that are in the state-sanctioned church, the state-sanctioned Catholic church and the state-sanctioned Protestant church. But most people at a minimum think that the church meeting underground in houses is somewhere between 90 and 100 million people. Some even guesstimate larger, but those are the numbers that seem to be, I, I think, most safely uh, reported. I'm in touch with uh, another friend, I've known him for 35 years, who has ministered in uh, South and East Africa. I just got this letter from him the other day. Uh, have you heard what's going on in Ethiopia? They're being racked by uh, violence, and um, he wrote this to me just this last week. He said, just in the last two years, the 74 full-time staff and thousands of volunteers have seen 1,424 churches planted in Ethiopia. 1,424 and 739 groups started. Many of them will evolve into churches. And that's in the midst of them being torn by famine and these roaming groups of militia that are attacking people and killing them. I didn't know that was going on, but it encouraged my heart, and I'm sure it encourages yours to hear that's going on uh, in Ethiopia. <clears throat> so it was said rightly years ago when someone described history as his story. That is that God is ruler of this world and he is superintending. The next one, the next parable, two taken together, the treasure and the pearl, in verses 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom is not only collective and corporate, it's also individual as one by one each of us is transferred into that kingdom through faith in Christ. This hidden treasure, I found this very interesting. It was a, a scholar whose specialty was Oriental history, which means the Near East as well as the Far East. And he recorded this, that if people were rich in the ancient world, he said that they uh, especially sought to hang on to their wealth by doing one of three things. Often dividing up their wealth into three categories. One category was they would employ in commerce or for their support. Another third, they would turn into jewels, which might be easily carried. And a third part, they bury. 
And he went on to say that in modern times, we don't consider that such a safe alternative, but in the ancient world, burying treasure was one way to make sure of kind of taking it to the bank, uh, if you would. And so you remember um, when Jesus is giving the parable in Matthew 25 about the different uh, servants that were given so many talents, and what did one of them do? He was afraid and went and hid his talent and buried it in the ground. So there's another example of where this commonly took place. Now why a man happens to be searching in a field that's not his own, Jesus doesn't tell us as he spins this little story here. It's like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. Uh, Perhaps he was a renter and found it. Uh, Maybe he had hidden it and forgot where it was hidden. I could see myself doing that. Where did I hide that thing? (laughs) I have some things around the house I'm still looking for. But burying it, uh, hoping to have security uh, in that. But here, the joy is over the person that finds the treasure. He likens the kingdom of God to that, to the man or woman who comes to an understanding of what Jesus is offering and what life in Christ is about, not only for this life but the life to come, He says that's like somebody who has the delight of finding a treasure of value that then becomes theirs. I don't know if, are Gary and Beth Ross here today? Okay. Somebody's pointing, but I don't see where they're sitting. Okay, right there. I see you. Well, you know, they live on a farm, and Beth purchased the house that had belonged to her grandparents. They built it, and there's acreage there, but one of... Best son's Robert was here, and he took a metal detector and went out in the yard and was searching around. I think I've got this right so far. And the, the medical detector went off, and he found buried a jar full of coins that had some value to it. And so how cool. I mean, you know, I, I see these people on the beach. We were just at the beach. Well, my family's still at the beach. I came back yesterday. But I see people out early in the morning every day at the beach, you know, with those metal detectors trying to dig things out of the sand. But obtaining the kingdom of God is, is worth any price or any sacrifice. One of my favorite commentators that I have, several of his books on my shelf, I thought he expressed it well when he said that the kingdom of heaven the glad recognition of God's rule over heart and life, including salvation for the present and for the future, for soul and ultimately also for the body, the great privilege of being thereby made a blessing to others to the glory of God. All this is a treasure so inestimably precious that one who obtains it is willing to surrender for it whatever could interfere with having it. It is the supreme treasure because it fully satisfies the needs of the heart. It brings inner peace and satisfaction. And similarly to that, he mentions the pearl, the costly pearl in verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. As it is today, and certainly in the ancient world, 
pearls were considered quite a treasure. Uh, people went out really to the risk of their lives, depending on how deep they were diving, in the Red Sea, in the Persian Gulf, and in the Indian Ocean. Only the wealthiest of people would even own a pearl. Uh, Caesar uh, gave the mother of Brutus, who later assassinated him, uh, a pearl that worth, well, in today's money, about $400,000. Uh, another first century writer tells us that Cleopatra possessed a pearl, and this is hard to imagine, but in today's money it would have been worth four to five million dollars. And there's other historical accounts of women adorning themselves on their hair, as well as jewelry on their, around their neck and on their hands. So if a person had pearls, they were really a person of means. And this man in the parable uh, apparently is an expert in pearls. He's a merchant that his business is seeking out pearls, assessing them, buying them, selling them. And this man finds a pearl that so far surpasses all the other pearls that he's ever seen that he considers it a fair exchange to sell everything he's got in order to buy this one valuable pearl precious pearl. And so, for us, once understanding the true value of Christ's kingdom as he presents it, his followers gladly exchange all to follow him. And indeed, Christians from the very beginning have seen the value of the kingdom of heaven and have given all for it, even their own lives remember in Luke 18, Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. Jesus said to them, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the truth, obviously, with these two parables is the inestimable or incalculable value of the kingdom of God. The last parable we'll consider in understanding what the kingdom of heaven is like is in verses 47 through 50. It's the parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 51, Jesus asked, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And uh, this drag net, I guess we just call it a fish net, is a form of fishing where typically one boat can do it with the little cork flotations, but typically two boats go out and drop a net with lead weights in the bottom so it sinks to the bottom and creates a wall as the net is floating at the top on what edge by the corks, and they pull it and drag the net in, and it brings a whole 
bunch of fish uh, with it. Uh, you can even do it uh, on an individual basis. Uh, I remember some of us have a mutual friend, Bartow McDonald. Uh, I went with him and my sons one time on a little weekend getaway, and he taught me how to use a seine net. You hold it in your mouth and you just fling it out. And it's probably about eight or ten feet wide. You let it sink to the bottom, you pull it in. We caught a bunch of shrimp and had them for dinner. It was cool. And so that's the kind of net that he's describing here. It collects all these fish. But notice his wording in this parable. The good and the bad is caught in this kingdom, in this gospel net. In the inclusive sweep of the kingdom throughout the world, all kinds of people are drawn in. But not all of them are true believers. And God knows that, certainly. We know that Satan is at work with counterfeits uh, in our midst. That has been true within the church always. A couple of reminders in order here. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus was aware that there would be in that throng of people following him, those who were not genuine believers. Paul, writing to Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 2, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there were not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Again, acknowledging that within the body of people who are professing to be Christians, not everyone is going to be authentic. Finally, 1 John 2, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. And so, we see here, as much as it appeals to people, universalism is not taught by Jesus. And when I use the term universalism, I'm talking about that belief that at the end of the day, somehow God's going to grade on a curve and everyone's going to be ushered into heaven. That is not what Jesus taught, and certainly the apostles didn't teach it. This parable, the truth being revealed, is that the day would come when this dragnet that has drawn in all these fish in the world, that God is going to separate the true from the false followers. God will distinguish, he will discriminate between the false and the true. And of course, we deal with the heartache of this uh, in our own day, when we see people who profess faith in Christ and seem to be a part of what's going on, and then to have them renounce their faith and disobey and walk away, 
that's just the harsh reality, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. We should always be heartbroken by it, but we should not be surprised by it because Jesus, as well as the apostles, told us to be prepared for this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. So the kingdom of heaven, of which we are a part if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, has a seemingly insignificant beginning. It has a pervasive influence. It's of inestimable value. And at the end of time, God will separate true from false believers. It's going to be the ultimate true or false exam. In the meantime, we can acknowledge that it has been inaugurated. If we're a Christian, we've been transferred into his kingdom even now but we are all awaiting the consummation of these things when Jesus Christ will reign and every knee will bow on heaven and on earth. Let me read you these verses from Revelation 11. This is great. When I read verses like I'm about to read to you, I liken it, and I think I've used this uh, example before, but it's been true in my life without a doubt. If I happen to not be able to watch a Gator game on TV or football game or attend it in the stadium, like one time I was overseas and I knew we were playing Georgia, but I wasn't able to watch the game because it wasn't available on TV and of course I was thousands of miles away. But then, I think it was from Joel, I got a, a text telling me that Florida had beat Georgia. Well, I didn't see the game until I got back to the States and I watched the replay. And it is amazing how relaxed I was watching the replay. Because when you're watching a game live, every mistake just hurts. And every misstep, every intercepted pass, every fumble, you just think, oh gosh, is this going to mean we're going to end up losing this game? But when I sit down to push replay and the game's already happened, I'm enjoying it no matter what mistakes we make. Because I know what the outcome is. And I think that's the way we should look at it, especially in light of these verses in uh, Revelation uh, 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And that day is coming. We probably long that it would be sooner rather than later, but regardless of the timetable, it is going to happen. God's Word says it. Jesus Christ affirms it. And so even as those elders there responded in worship, now I would like us to respond through the rest of our service today in worship of God because of his kingdom that is being spread throughout the world and of which we are a part. 